Okay. I have to bring you with me in all future engagements that I go to. Well, it's nice to see there are lots of screens around us here. If I were a North Korean dictator, we'd have my face up in each one of them. And you could... Just a thought. I don't know why that occurred to me. I don't know. Actually, that's a scary thought when you think about it. All right, I want to talk about, uh, first, I'm, I'm focus a little bit at the beginning here on two sections that we didn't get to talk about at the chapel service, but I think which are critical to this discussion uh, if we're to have a reasonable presentation of Scripture, and one is going to the Genesis text, and the other is looking at what Paul has to say, since he has some pivotal remarks about homosexual practice. But first, I want to say something about, just generally, about what I think is wrong why I think we should have a problem with the issue of homosexual practice, because you're going to hear people argue, really, what is your problem if you have two people who love one another and who just happen to be the same sex as each other, why do you make such a big deal out of that? What, are you opposed to love? Okay, you probably heard that remark being given before. I'm not saying anything radically new from what's already been proposed. Uh, and what I would say is the problem with that argument initially is that it confuses generic love with sexual love. And sexual love involves an array of requirements or prerequisites for sexual activity that is not involved in the case of generic love, right? So when Jesus interpreted as we talked briefly at chapel yesterday about what love is, generic love, love of neighbor, he defined that universally to include everyone with whom you come into contact, even if that person is an enemy, and if the enemy is hard for you to love, as with the parable of the Good Samaritan, imagine yourself lying half dead by the side of the road, and let's say a, um, let's say a Wesleyan fellow comes by, and does nothing to help you because he knows it's a dangerous road. And if he stops, maybe he'll get beaten up by the same. Maybe those robbers are actually still lying in wait for the next traveler going by. And uh, then a Baptist comes, maybe somebody from Crandall, I don't know, comes by <laughs> after a very difficult hockey game that they've had with another imposing team whose name shall go unmentioned for now. Uh, also uh, thinks that there's trouble lurking and says, I'm, I'm not going to help. And then finally, who would we have to get to be the enemy? I don't know, maybe an Anglican? I don't know. What, what, who would we get? Anyway, what's that now? Somebody else would come by anyway who you would <laughs> think you wouldn't want any help from whatsoever. Uh, and, uh, and that person, what would you want that person to do for you? you would want that person to make him or herself a neighbor to you at that point uh, and, and be of help to you in your hour of need. So that would, that would help you reconceptualize, thinking in those terms, Jesus said, would help you to reconceptualize or rethink what it means when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, okay? If your neighbor is the person 
who is the only one standing between you and debt, it's remarkable how inclusive you can be about the meaning of neighbor, right? So remember what the, the whole question that facilitated Jesus' parable was a question by a lawyer, and the lawyer asked who his neighbor was after Jesus gave the command to love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19.18. And why do you suppose the lawyer would ask who his neighbor is? So he could figure out who his neighbor isn't, and on that basis, not have to love that one. Okay, so it's an attempt in the question to limit what the meaning of neighbor is, and Jesus takes the opposite approach, and again, makes the hero the enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that the enemy, now in the course of the parable, who was the enemy in the parable? Anyone remember? I just said it with the parable's name. The Good Samaritan. Well, we call we always say the Good Samaritan now, but they would never have put good with Samaritan uh, in those days because a Samaritan was somebody who didn't believe that, uh, that David was uh, a legitimate king of Israel. Uh, they believed that the ark should never have been moved to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, should have remained in the northern tribes the whole time. They didn't adhere to most of the prophets. They actually disregarded all the prophets, that were canonized uh, in, in Judea. So uh, Jesus is certainly not commending any of that, right? But Jesus is still saying, view this enemy as somebody who can be a recipient of your love and your outreach of grace, okay? So that's an important concept behind the whole notion of what love is. Love is universalized to include everyone with whom you come into contact. But sex, of course, is a different thing, right? If you apply the principle of love everyone with whom you come into contact to sexual love, then you may have a problem because you'll be having sex with everybody. And obviously, that is not what Jesus is advocating. In fact, where Jesus is very inclusive and universal in his understanding of neighbor as the recipient of generic love, when it comes to sexual activity, he limits the number of available partners lifetime to one person of the other sex. So where one meaning is as inclusive as it can be, the other is as exclusive as it can be. That's a different understanding about sex. That means that sex has special requirements that are not germane to the issue of generic love. Now, with regard to homosexual practice, I've laid out what I perceive here are three main pro four main problems with homosexual practice, in the very nature of it, in inherently, intrinsically. One is sexual self-deception. And I say that because the initial question that somebody might ask you, is it just love like any heterosexual love, right? Two people love each other, why not accept that? But the reality is it actually is a different sort of love. It is an attraction for, some, for what is essentially what you already are, viewing a sexual other as though that sexual other were a sexual same. I mean, the sexual same, I should say, reverse it, as a sexual other. When in fact, that person shares in common the specific traits of gender that one has who loves that person in that sense. So that is a form of sexual self-deception in the sense that this person with whom they're having intercourse is not a, sexu a complementary sexual other. It's not somebody who complements their sexual distinctiveness. 
if male, their maleness, if female, their femaleness, but rather somebody who is exactly as they are in their sex or gender. But the nature of sexual intercourse, the way that God has created us, is for us to unite with somebody who is complementary to ourselves, somebody who is a counterpart to ourselves, somebody who is like us but also significantly different, not just as an individual but as a distinct sex. And that leads to the second problem of sexual dishonor because, in effect, it treats one's own gender as only half intact with, in relation to one's own sex, not in relation to the other sex. Now, I'm probably you could guess I am male, okay? And uh, I, do I capture the totality of the sexual spectrum? What do you think? Do I? I probably don't even capture my little section of the spectrum of maleness. I don't know. But uh, the totality of the sexual spectrum is not mine to be had because God has created how many sexes? Two primary sexes. Even the so-called intersex only participate uh, in the distinctive features of two primary sexes. It might be a little blurred, might be a little ambiguous, but it's not really a third sex, a distinct sex. God deliberately creates two primary sexes, okay? So by definition, as a male, I'm only half the sexual spectrum, not the whole sexual spectrum. I'm half in relation to the other sex that God creates. I am not, however, half in relation to my own sex. My own maleness is intact as a male. I can't add to it anything by uniting sexually with another male. In fact, by uniting sexually with another male, I only, uh, I only make myself acclimated to the erroneous view that I'm not really fully male. And I need to supplement structurally, that's a term I would use, structural supplementation, supplement, supplement myself structurally in my embodied existence with another male. But that makes me, in effect, a half male. If the logic of a, of a heterosexual union is the two halves of the sexual spectrum unite, into a single integrated sexual whole, then the logic of a homosexual union is two half males become a whole male, two half females become a whole female. And that is what Scripture refers to, what Paul refers to in Romans 1, as an act of dishonoring oneself because it dishonors the integrity of the way God creates us as male and female and says that God erred in making your maleness if male or femaleness if, if, if female, God erred in making it only half that actual gender. And God did not err in doing so because God did not make you a half male or a half female. He made you half in relation to the other sex that exists. Another component that's problematic is what I refer to as sexual narcissism. Because when you think about what a person is attracted to when they're erotically aroused by somebody of the same sex, is that they're attracted to the distinctive features of their own sex. Now, that includes anatomy, but it's not limited to anatomy. It includes physiology, sexual function. It includes, as well, psychology, right? There are actually people going around and making money with the adage that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Now, of course, they're not actually from Mars and Venus, although actually women, you may have a good case about men being from Mars, I suppose. But women, I'm sure you're here on planet Earth. But men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Why, do, why is that put out there? Because men and women 
find that they're uniquely other as an entire class of beings, not just as individuals. Men are distinctly different from women. One of the early debates I had, which was in South Carolina, I debated a uh, New Testament professor from Columbia Seminary uh, in Georgia, and uh, she just couldn't get over one point that I made, which is that men and women are different. And we later went out to dinner, the head pastor, the associate pastor, myself, and, and her, and she just kept harping on that. You really believe that men are different from women? I had to confess I did. In the meantime, the two other pastors were just rolling in the aisles. I couldn't stop laughing because to them, it was utterly obvious. So men and women are significantly different from one another. And that's the way God deliberately designed us. There's a reason for that. When you unite sexually with somebody of the same sex, it leads to the fourth problem of sexual harm. Because the beauty of the differences in the sexes, male and female, is that when you unite in marriage, the extremes of a given sex are moderated, and the gaps in your sexual self are filled. Because I'm not the totality of the sexual spectrum. There is another group, female, I hear tell, and there are ways in which uniting with a woman, as I do with my wife, although it creates tensions, doesn't create always an Aussie and Harry world, nor should it. It makes the interesting dynamic of marriage where extremes in my masculinity can be moderated in her femininity. And the gaps that exist sexually in myself as a male are filled by her as a female. That means extremes are moderated and gaps are filled. When you don't have that happen in a homosexual union, you get a disproportionately high rate of measurable harm. Now, that's not saying that there is an absolute harm. You can surmise absolute harm, but you can't prove it scientifically. But scientifically, you can measure disproportionately high rates of harm. And they differ between male homosexual relationships and female homosexual relationships. What would you think would be an aspect of male homosexual relationships that would be different qualitatively from female homosexual relationships? Anybody care to hazard a guess? The clue would be, how are men different from women in their sexual behaviors and interests? We have such a kind group here. Yes, go ahead. Men are indeed, male homosexual relationships are far less monogamous than female homosexual relationships. This is not surprising. About a decade ago, they did a federally funded study, third world, first world, tribal societies, industrial societies, all around the world, interviewed 15,000 people. 15,000 people. They came, hold on to your seats, to the astounding conclusion that men find monogamy more difficult than women. Oh, really? I wish they just called me in my office. I could have told them the answer. These are your tax dollars working hard for you, right? What would we do without experts? Right? You really don't need a federally funded study for that, okay? Uh, in many respects, this is even, uh, as far as males go, is even cross-species in most cases, rather not even just cross-cultural. 
Uh, men find monogamy more difficult than women. They have 10 times the main sex hormone uh, testosterone than do women, and that has an enormous impact on male, on male sexuality. Uh, so uh, men are less monogamous in male homosexual relationships. Open relationships are far more common than any other group that we can refer to. You know what I mean by open relationships, where there's agreement on the part of both partners that they can have outside partners as long as they come back home to their initial partner, okay? Much higher rates of percentage in male homosexual groups than any other population group, okay? Because this is what men come up with, left to themselves, okay? And not surprisingly, if you have less monogamy, more larger numbers of sex partners over the course of life, um, and they are extraordinarily large. The only study still that I'm aware of is from Macquarie University in Australia looking at um, self-identified homosexual or gay men and uh, the number of lifetime partners they have from the age of 55 up. And uh, something like only 2% who are sexually active have been able to maintain less than five sex partners to this point in their life the vast majority have over 100, and the majority of that majority has over 500. I don't even know where they get the time. That's my question. Where do you get, where to find the time? But somehow men do. I don't know how that works. Now, if you have that going on, then you're also going to have another corollary follow, higher sexually transmitted infection rates. Okay, that's easily going to follow, and it does, relative not just to heterosexual males, but to homosexual females and certainly heterosexual females. So that's distinctive about male sexuality, okay? Males like to, I, I, how graphic can I be here? They like to insert, okay? And you do not have the appropriate orifice in another male. That's why sometime, I actually uh, saw a gay publication once when I was in Philadelphia, picked it up, and every page there was an ad for a proctologist. Okay, I've never seen anything like that before. There's a reason for that, because of the nature of male sexuality and the problem that that creates for health. For women, what would you think in female homosexual relationships are distinctive to them? This is more difficult than it is. Men are very predictable. As usual, men are highly predictable. Um, what would you expect for women? Anyone? Yes. Back here. Okay, they do. And that gets at a, an issue or a problem. Anyone want to add to that to find that further? Women invest more of themselves in a relationship, right? More of their needs for self-worth, for significance, for security, are invested in intimacy, are invested in that relationship, in that sexual relationship. Okay, so what... Why would that be a problem? Anyone? Yes. You're very bold, by the way, as a man to explain the problem, but go ahead. <laughs> Women, you can phone him and contact him later today. What number? No, go ahead. Proceed. Yeah, I think that that's 
that you're having unrealistic expectations about what the relationship can do for you. And when you have two women making the same high demands on each other in the relationship, it places inordinate stress on the relationship and leads to a higher relational turnover. Actually, that's the, it seems initially counterintuitive, right? Because if female homosexual relationships are far more monogamous than male homosexual relationships, you would expect them to last longer. But in fact, they don't last on average as long as even male homosexual relationships, which don't last nearly as long as heterosexual relationships. And that's just the nature of too much burden, too much stress, too much in the way of expectations being placed on the relationship for meeting needs of self-worth and security. Okay, and then there's another issue that in particular comes up. Anyone want to hazard a guess what that would be? Yes, thank you. Sorry? To be a mother, right. The fact that inability to procreate, that gets at an issue. It's a contributing factor to this. It's basically mental health issues. Issues around depression are much higher in lesbian relationships than they are in male homosexual relationships. Partly because of the birth issue, partly because, again, the failed expectations of the relationship with two women making such high demands at each other. In general, women, because... Um, I'm going to make this a compliment, that women in general just have a higher social IQ than men. Have you found that to be the case generally? I find that to be the case every day of my life. I don't know how it works with you, but uh, I'm always playing a little bit of catch up with that. And that's the plus side. The minus side is there's so much in touch with that sense of intimacy and companionship um, and socializing issues of sorts that that uh, when that doesn't pan out, it affects them deeply in a way even beyond what it would affect men often. And so there's a, a higher rate of issues around depression associated with women just generally. And that gets ratcheted up when you have in a same-sex relationship, a lesbian relationship. So all that's as a way of pointing out disproportionately high rates of harm, measurable harm, in male and female homosexual relationships but they differ according to gender type. So if somebody says, well, the only reason why there's disproportionately high rates of harm is because societal homophobia, whatever that is, okay? If that were true, then you would expect the same rates of measurable harm between male and female homosexuals, but you don't. You find differing rates of harm in different areas based on exactly what you would expect in gender differences. So the real problem here is not so-called societal homophobia. The real problem here is the lack of a true gender complement that can moderate the extremes of one sex and fill in the gaps. That's the main issue. So you can see here, none of this, I haven't appealed to scripture in any of this discussion up to this point, okay? I am ready to pass out, but I have not yet appealed to scripture in any of this discussion. This is just simply a, na a nature slash science kind of argument to make use of, right? The issue of disproportionate harm at the end is a scientific argument because that's measurable. That, can, that you can get from data. The, the other three arguments about sexual self-deception, dishonor, narcissism, these are just things that are naturally intuited from the quality of the relationship. 
In narcissism, if you are sexually aroused by what you already are, if that doesn't qualify as a definition of narcissism, I don't know what it is, what would be. But in another sense, it's not entirely narcissism because they're not perceiving that sameness in a sexual same as something they already have. And that's where the self-deception kicks in because they do share it in common. So it's always going to oscillate between the self-deception and narcissism, uh, given the given individuals. Okay? Any follow-up comments or questions about that before we go into something with Genesis? Yes. We're going to do the Oprah Phil Donahue thing. <laughs> yeah. You when all don't even know dealing... who Phil Donahue is, I'm sure. I'm, I doubt if you even know Oprah. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure you know her at least. Okay. Uh, when we're dealing with different sides of a sexual spectrum and talking about how uh, it sh they complement each other, uh, it, this could be a rabbit trail. But how do you handle uh, a culture that says that gender can change on a whim um, and then it's just your anatomy that looks a certain way? so that they could say that they've jumped to the other side of the spectrum because they changed because of various things that they were born that way, or they just feel different today, I guess. Yeah, the question is if, they, if uh, people will argue that gender can change according to your understanding of what gender is. And is it really so tied to biology anymore, uh, but one's own thinking about oneself? Uh, but the problem is, where do you, you, we already get that. We already get that in lesbian and male homosexual relationships where there's a conception of gender very different from what the usual norm about what gender is uh, has been given in society. And yet we still find these disproportionately high rates of problems because men in the end still remain men. Women still remain m women. Homosexual males are only different from heterosexual males in the directedness of their attractions to a given sex, but not in the fundamental nature of that attraction. So, for example, there is a guy, J. Michael Bailey, who's a psychologist at Northwestern. Uh, about a decade ago, he did a wonderful book called The Man Who Would Be Queen. Okay? See the lovely titles I get to read. And half of it is about homosexuality, and half of it is about transgenderism. And in the section about homosexuality, there's a whole chapter about how uh, gay men are more like women. But then he immediately follows up with another chapter about how, really, in the end, gay men are still men. And especially is how they think about themselves sexually. So, for example, do you think a gay man advertises for a sexual partner or advertises for a mate, let me put it more neutrally, in the same way that a lesbian woman advertises for a mate? Not at all. What gay men advertise for in gay publications, Bailey also did a whole study on that, if you could believe it. Got federal money for that also. It's just amazing what you get money for nowadays. I can't get any money, but he's getting all this money for this stuff. Um, but that's my issue, so. He, the gay men advertise, they don't, they advertise things that no woman would ever answer an ad for. I mean, they're talking about dimensions of certain body parts. That's how they advertise for what they're really looking for. Okay, if you try that as a man with regard to woman, with a woman, you're not going to get any takers on that because the superficiality of your sexuality will be very prominent to people, and the basic response will be, this guy is a jerk. 
but that's the general way in which they advertise in gay publications. Is that because gay men are fundamentally different from heterosexual men? No. What's different about heterosexual men is they have to learn to negotiate their sexuality in relation to women. That's what's different. And so it shows a fundamental agreement even by those that gender bend, if you will. You can't ultimately get rid of your biological nature. Uh, well, I could say that we can deny ourselves, lose our lives, and come follow Jesus, certainly, um, and uh, take up our crosses. But that takes the power of the Spirit to do. Okay, there was a question back here, I think. Same one, okay. Yes, back here. Brent has one also back there. And be answered in a different time, but what would you say to people who are born with no gender or both genders? What would you say about the problem there? Yeah, the question of the problem of the intersex. What do we do with the problem of the intersex? Intersex is a very varied phenomenon. There are many different possibilities in terms of intersex, uh, so-called. And generally, it's not an intersex problem. Uh, you have, but there are different issues that could happen. You could have, uh, because of um, inability to receive hormones or testosterone in the womb, you can have underdeveloped genitals as a male or female, or genitals look a little bit more like the other sex than your own, but you're still fundamentally chromosomally male or female, right? In other cases, you might have, an, um, instead of having uh, XY, you might have an extra chromosome XY. Uh, one or the other, that also creates a little bit of a problem. What we're talking about here, in terms of percentage of the population, we're talking basically about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1%. And the question is whether this is part of God's design and creation, or whether this is due to the infiltration of sin into the world. And as Christians, we would argue the latter. And therefore, it's not to be taken as in any sense normative. This would be a parallel example would be conjoined twins. Okay, let's say you have conjoined twins, so they're joined, say, at the shoulder. How do you maintain monogamy as a conjoined twin? I mean, how do you ask the other person to leave? Could, you know, my sibling, could you step out of the room? I mean, okay, and then you all go out of the room. You can't, it really creates a problem for monogamy, right? But do we then take that example and then say there should be no monogamy anymore? No, because we find this as the extreme rare exception to the overarching rule which God defines as the norm, not ruined by the infiltration of sin into the world. So even among the so-called intersex, at least 80 to 85% of these cases clearly move in the direction of one sex. So it's a question of making uh, surgical procedures are possible for clarifying ambiguities in, ge in genitals and so forth. Uh, there still remains a tiny fraction, especially with the chromosomal variation, uh, in which there's greater ambiguity. But again, such a minute segment of the larger population. We're talking about 0.01% of the whole. We're 
you were talking about uh, just facts, just from before we get to the Bible side of it. I know for me on the marriage side of things, sometimes, you know, there's an overarching theme of living together before you're married doesn't increase the chances of success, but lowers it. Some seems to be like a general known thing. So in this case, you've given a lot of facts. What would be like kind of general or specifics we could say, you know, it's kind of understood that this is un- more unhealthy because of this. Like you've, you've convinced us, we all know this, but are there certain things that would be generally accepted as known facts? This is unhealthy. This is consistent with depression or in this sense, this isn't going to be a healthy way to do relationships that we could reference going from this. Would you have anything that would be common knowledge facts that we could rely on in that sense? Well, that male homosexual relationships have higher numbers of sex partners over the course of life and higher incidence of sexually transmitted infections. That's a universal fact. The data simply confirms that. Nobody really argues against that. The issue of interpretation comes around why that is. So somebody may say, okay, that exists for men, but the reason for that is that's all the more reason why we have to give them gay marriage. Because gay marriage will give them the monogamy, which will eliminate the sexually transmitted infections. But it doesn't change. The institution of gay marriage doesn't fundamentally change men in their sexual relationship to one another. So that will be the point of contention, the interpretation of the data, not the actual data itself. But the interpretation is not hard. That erroneous interpretation is not hard to demonstrate as erroneous, uh, simply because for a number of reasons. Uh, the number of men who are involved in gay marriage, as a percentage of the total gay population, is a very small percentage of the whole, in countries or in states that already have gay marriage. Most gay men do not commit themselves to marriage, and when they do commit themselves to marriage, a large percentage of them remain the open marriage phenomenon. So, and that actually helps them to increase in longevity. Otherwise, they would just get terribly bored and dissolve the relationship completely, uh, as well as still a low relational uh, duration level, although longer still than a lesbian relationship. Uh, the, the lesbian issue is a little bit more uh, controversial, uh, but, but we, because we don't have as much data in general on lesbians as we do on male homosexuality. But the data that we do have, for example, the data that I cited you, both, both lower longevity of the relationship and higher mental health issues. Where did I get that data? Well, many sources, but one of the sources was Zadok's comprehensive textbook on psychiatry. And that section on homosexuality is written by a gay man and a lesbian woman. So they can hardly be accused. Even they acknowledge those statistics about lesbians. Again, the argument people will use is it's the absence of societal affirmation that leads to that. But the response to that is if that's true, then why doesn't the harm for gay men look exactly like the harm for gay women and vice versa? It doesn't. It corresponds exactly to what you would predict if you had two men together or two women together because of the nature of male and female sexuality. Okay, let's go on to say a little bit something about Genesis and then we'll go into our break into our groups here. And we'll start with, of course, the creation story. Oh, let me, if I could, actually, Shane, if you could first go to slide 59. 59. This will sort of illustrate some of the points that we just made. Here's the difference between men and women. On the top of the box is man. (laughs) On the bottom of the box is woman. Now, just think about that for a moment. Let that sink in. 
My wife has explained to me the correct interpretation of that picture, and that is men are simplistic creatures. I have another interpretation, but I'm not allowed to say it. Okay, let's move on. Well, let's go back to 19, please. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, Genesis 1, okay, focusing in particular on the middle section. God created the Adam. This is a Hebrew word, Adam, which simply means human. It's from the Hebrew word Adamar, meaning the ground, the one who is formed from the ground, from the dust of the earth. God created the Adam in his image. In the image of God, he created him or it. Depends how the Hebrew could go either way. Male and female, he created them. Okay, now what does that element teach us? Well, it teaches us that. Oops, I've gone too far again. I don't have to remember how to use this. I am so challenged when it comes to this. Okay, the image of God is existing in male and female complementarity. Okay, that close connection in the text between me being made in God's image and being created male and female. I think, believe the text is making a correlation in that to say that, in effect, male and female are each part of a faceted whole in talking about God. Now, we're all created in God's image, right? But there's a sense in which God's image is expressed more completely in the church, as a total unit than it is in any individual, right? So Paul talks about spiritual gifts. We're not all a hand or an arm or a leg. We're all different parts of a larger body. And the totality of the church is a fuller expression of Christ's body than is any given individual. And in the same way with male and female, in their sexual expression, the totality of understanding who God is is more fully expressed by the union of the two, then separately, even though separately they're each created in God's image. It's not a sin, by the way, not to have sex. Uh, but if you do engage in sexual expression, there's a way in which it could be sinful and a way in which it is not. Now, as you know, animals, usually the comeback when I make this point is, but animals also are created male and female. Are you saying they're being made in God's image because of that? No, because the text doesn't integrate in its discussion being created in God's image with being made male and female for animals. You can even check that. Great Jewish commentator Nahum Sana in his commentary, the Jewish publication commentary series, makes that point himself in discussing Genesis 1, that male and female uh, for human beings is integrated into the creation as God's image. And that's, in effect, a way of saying that what they do sexually can either enhance or efface that image that's been stamped on their being. So, as I noted last night to some people came to the student center, I have a lovely dog, Benji, who is part Yorkshire Terrier and part Maltese. Very sweet dog. He thinks he's the king of the forest. Loves to go on a little, little uh, bench or stool we have outside, and he surveys his kingdom outside and makes sure all is right and barks at every little thing that walks by. Thank you, Benji. Could you be quiet? Okay, that's our Benji. We love our Benji, but we do not derive our sexual ethics from Benji because Benji is not very discriminating when it comes to sexual ethics matters. Now, do I hold Benji responsible for that? No, because Benji is not created in God's image. I am. And what I do sexually does impinge on my creation in God's image. That's what that text is basically saying. 
So you can't, like with fertility cults in the ancient Near East, do whatever you want to do. It's, there's a sacral character to human sexuality, basically what the text is saying. We'll see that even more in the next text from Genesis 2, the creation of woman. Yahweh God said, it's not good for the Adam or human to be alone. I will make for him a helper as his counterpart. We'll come back to that term. And Yahweh God formed from the ground, the Adamah, every animal of the field, every bird of the air. But, of course, that wasn't a true counterpart or complement for the Adam. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the Adam or human, and he slept. And he took one of his, literally one from his, usually you get ribs in text, and I'm going to render it sides here for a moment and come back, sides or ribs. And he closed up its place with flesh. And Yahweh God built the side or rib, Selah, that he had taken from the Adam into a woman, and he brought her to the Adam or human. And the Adam said, you can see this constant repetition of the Adam here. I put that deliberately so that will stand out in the description here. This at last is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. To this one shall be given the name woman, Isha, for from an Ish man this one was taken. Now, Ish is a gender-specific term. Adam is not. Therefore, a man, an Ish, shall leave his father and mother and become attached or joined or stuck or united. This is, incidentally, the Hebrew verb here. I know you're laughing at this, but and uh, as well you should. The Hebrew verb here is actually the same verb for gluing things together. And also in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, they use a verb that is also used for gluing things together. Now, here's where prepositions are critical. Okay, I don't want you to go back if you're married and tell your spouse, I just learned that I'm stuck with you. Okay, because that, that's the wrong preposition to use at that point, with, at the, with that particular verb. You want to say, no, I'm stuck to you. Not with you, okay? There's a critical distinction here. Stuck to you. Attached, joined, stuck, united to his woman or wife, Isha, and they or the two shall become one flesh. Incidentally, in the Hebrew text, the phrase the two does not appear. But in all of what we call the versional evidence, it appears. That is all the non-Hebrew versions of the Old Testament text. So the Samaritan uh, Pentateuch the Aramaic Targums, the Greek Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate. All the versional evidence has the two. No exception. All the versions have the two. The only one that doesn't have the two is the Hebrew text. And what that means is very early on, they came to understand that there was an implicit two-ness to the sexual bond by virtue of the two-ness of the sexes. And although we don't have Jesus' Aramaic words when he discusses these texts, at least in the Greek translation in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, the two is used, which is likely what he would have said, because it, by that point, it was universally understood that there's a, there's a sort of exclusivity to that two-ness, given the two-ness of the sexes. Now, let's go back to that term that I translated side. It's the Hebrew term is selah. Uh, interestingly enough, outside of Genesis, it always means side. Once it refers to the side of a hill in 2 Samuel, and all other occurrences, something like 35 other occurrences in the Hebrew Bible, it refers to the side of a piece of sacral architecture. The side of the ark, the tabernacle, or the incense altar in Exodus, the side planks or side rooms of the Solomonic temple, or the side of some part of the eschatological temple in Ezekiel. 
Isn't that interesting? Outside of Genesis 2, with the one exception of 2 Samuel 16, the term is exclusively used for the house in which God dwells. Do you think it's then accidental that when Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, still dealing with the case of sexual immorality at Corinth of the incestuous man, and in chapter 6 says, talks about the necessity of fleeing porneia, the Greek term for sexual immorality, explains why. Because your body is a what? Temple of the Holy Spirit that is in you. Do you think that that's an accidental connection here? I don't. Paul understood well that human beings in their sexuality are, unlike animals, are sacral architecture. What they do sexually matters to God and in a significant way affects their holiness before God. It's simply a way of saying, does sex matter to God? You better believe it does. And what you do in your sexuality is of pivotal importance to your spiritual growth, to your holiness before God. And what does holiness mean, by the way? Anyone know what holiness means? Set apart. Very good. You did train your students here well. Set apart. Do you know that um, utensils in the temple can be called holy? They don't do anything. But if you take them out of the temple and use them in your own private home for profane purposes, secular purposes, uh, well, ask Belshazzar what happens when you do that. Menel, menel, take a parcel, whatever. Something bad is going to happen to you. Not a good thing, because these utensils are reserved exclusively for God's use in the temple. And that's what it means to say that you're holy. You are reserved for God's exclusive use. There are a lot of people in the world, but very few people do the will of God. God has called us out in the world to be his people that will do his will. So what are the first things you pray when you pray in the Lord's Prayer? After you say, Our Father who art in heaven. Next line. What does that mean? Your name be praised. really means may your name be revered as holy. It's an imperative in Greek. It's not a statement. It's an imperative. May your name be treated or revered as holy. It's a related verb, hagiazo, to the uh, Greek adjective hagias for holy. Next line. May your kingdom come. Next line. May your will be done. As it's already being done on heaven, in heaven, let it be done here on earth. That's the first thing, three things you pray for in the Lord's Prayer. That's what Jesus, it's a didactic moment when Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. Because the Lord's Prayer is a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. In fact, it's located smack in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Right in the middle. There's like three layers on the other side, three layers on the other side in concentric circles. Right in the middle is the Lord's Prayer. That's deliberately placed there to say, this is the essential teaching of Jesus. Every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, it's a design for you to learn from it. Every time I pray the Lord's Prayer and I say, forgive me only to the extent that, you that I forgive others, because that's what the forgiveness prayer means, the forgiveness petition. I'm wishing I didn't have to say that. 
Okay, because I'm signing on the dotted line and saying, Lord, only forgive me to the extent that I forgive everyone else. Otherwise, just retract your forgiveness. Okay? We don't even know what we're saying when we say that. This is tough stuff here. Okay? First three things, do God's will. We want God's will to be done on earth as it's currently being done in heaven. And that includes our sexual expression in an integral way. That term for counterpart that I translated earlier is a term konegdo. Uh, God will make for him a helper as his counterpart. It comprises the terms ka, meaning as or like, a suffix o, meaning his, and the preposition neged, which means both corresponding to and opposite. Corresponding to as a fellow human, opposite as a person of the other sex. Hence the meaning counterpart or complement. There's a fourfold reference in 221 to 23 to something being taken from the human. Four times. God took one from, one of, or literally one from his sides. Yahweh God built the side that he had taken from the Adam. This at last is bone from my bones, flesh from my flesh. To this one given the name woman, for from an ish man this one was taken. But I repeat myself. Four times. Why do you think it's stressed four times that something was taken from the Adam? Because when that element is taken, something is missing now in what's left. What is missing, sexually speaking, from the man? Woman. Now, you can compare that to the Atrahasic epic in Mesopotamia, which talks about the creation of man and woman, seven, seven separate men created, seven separate women created, but they're not, one isn't taken from the other. That's a distinctive feature of the Hebrew understanding of the origin of human beings. That there's something missing in masculine sexuality. A missing element that cannot be restored. Now, what is? can that missing element be supplied by another man to a man? Was a man extracted from a man? No. No, that's not the missing element. The missing element of man, sexually speaking, is woman. So already within the Genesis text, we have that in place. Okay, we're not going to go into, oh, here's final conclusion of that, then we'll, I think we're going to break for a break. And then we'll go into a group thing. So what is missing from the Adam is the part that God builds into a woman. Man and woman are then presented as two essential complementary parts of a holistic picture of human sexuality. One flesh, then, does not merely mean somebody of the same family. The two unite to become one flesh means that you're restoring the missing part to the original whole. So the image then of one flesh becoming two sexes that you have in Genesis 2 grounds the principle of the two sexes becoming one flesh. In effect, you have not just a union of male and female, but a reunion. Marriage is the reunion of the divided parts. And that's why you can't simply make do with somebody of the same sex. Just to give you a heads up, there's some main passages that get talked on. Genesis is obviously the beginning. Leviticus and the law start to talk about it. And then Romans 1 are huge passages that often get focused on, on the issue of homosexuality. 
He's going to go into, Dr. Gagnon's going to hit on a little bit of Romans 1. He's been an expert, especially on the New Testament and Paul. And, and this passage and can really bring home some amazing content on that. We'll probably have some que- time for a few questions for us as a group at the end. But there's no way he's going to be able to house all of our questions within this two-hour time mark. So what that is happening is we don't want to miss out on the content. We want to discuss a little bit. But then the two things that are happening, lunch for student leaders. You should have been getting gotten an email from Eileen Gable for those that were just want to give student leaders a certain time to talk about questions on that. And then from 2 to 3.30 is kind of a recap for anything Bible or practically, practically wise that you want to ask question-wise too. So make sure that if there are certain questions that you're, you want answered, whether it's the practical side of it, whether it's the Bible side of it, make sure you write those down and you have those ready because you will have certain times, but you will have to be ready with questions, not just making them up on the spot and saying, oh, yeah, if I have time. If you want certain questions answered for you, for your friends, make sure you know what you want to ask and make sure you're ready for that because uh, this is an amazing time and opportunity to get some amazing feedback on those questions. So right now I'm going to hand it back over to Dr. Gagnon, and we're going to hear on Romans 1, which would be one of the huge passages on homosexuality. Thank you, Brent. So, uh, Shane, if uh, we could go to slide 27. Oh, we're already up there. Very good. You are clairvoyant. Thank you. (laughs) So, uh, therefore, God gave them over. Uh, The therefore is following a section about idolatry. Uh, Paul is actually making the argument in Romans 1.18 through 3.20 that not just that all people are under sin, right? That's easy. Ask your spouse if you're married. Ask your siblings if you're not. Uh, They'll tell you. All are under sin. That's easy. But not just that, that, that all deliberately suppress the truth about God and about the way God made them that is accessible to them not just in direct revelation. I mean, that's the best thing, obviously, is to get it from Scripture. But let's say you don't have Scripture or you don't care about Scripture. Then the information is still accessible to you in the material structures of creation that, are, that is all around us. So that Paul says in the end, those who sin do so in suppressing the truth and are therefore without excuse, on apogaletas, without apology, without defense in that classical thing. Nothing to say to God, but I didn't know, right? You're always getting that from people. I didn't know, therefore I am excused. No, you don't know enough to be saved, right? You need direct revelation to hear the gospel. But you do know enough, Paul said, to be, I'm going to use that term, sorry, culpable. You do know enough to be held liable or guilty before God for what you have done. Not enough to be saved, but now you know that word, enough to be culpable. Okay, some of you, most of you already know it, I'm sure. Gesundheit. Uh, When I say culpable, it generally leads to sneezing. So there you go. God gave them over. Now, here's an important point. God gave them over, right? God, this is the first demonstration of God's wrath, God's judgment. We think that God's judgment first comes when we're struck with a lightning bolt, right? If we do something wrong and God strikes us in some way or something bad happens in our life, okay, that's judgment. What we don't realize is the first stage of judgment, according to Paul, is looks just like this. Pay close attention. This is the first stage of God's judgment. What did I just do? I stepped back. That's God's first stage of judgment. He steps back. He does not 
intervene to prevent people from dishonoring and degrading themselves by gratifying base urges to do what God doesn't want them to do, that mars the stamp of God's image on their being. That is the first stage of judgment when God does nothing. God simply hands people over to the controlling power of their pre-existing urges to do what they want to do. That gives a whole new look to judgment, doesn't it? So rather than wiping your brow because the lightning bolt doesn't strike you for the wrong that you do, you should be fearful of the fact that nothing happened because God operating in love disciplines. Discipline is a good thing, not a bad thing. When there's no discipline, that's the real threat because then there's nothing left but you being controlled by your own innate desires basically rendered as a brute beast in God's eyes rather than a human being created in God's image, heaping up your sins and leading to cataclysmic destruction at the end. That's the whole picture of Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter. God gave them over. He handed them over. Why did he do so? Because of the desires of their hearts. Because they were insistent that they were going to do what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it, with whom they wanted to do it with. The very ones, mind you, oh, we've got a part here, because the desires of the heart to an uncleanness, okay, the word there is a kathosia, an impurity, an uncleanness. This is the term that's almost everywhere in Paul used for sexual offenses. It's the way in which we sometimes talk about certain sexual behavior as dirty. This is sexual nomenclature that Paul is using here to an uncleanness, a sexual impurity consisting of their bodies being dishonored among themselves. Imagine that. They dishonor their own bodies. That is that God has honored us with these bodies and created these bodies for certain things and not for other things. And to do the other things dishonors what God has created. The very ones, mind you, who exchanged, now he repeats to reiterate what he just talked about in 118 to 123. The very ones, mind you, who exchanged the truth about God for the lie. They exchanged. Imagine that. How absurd is that? They had the truth, but they decided to exchange it for something that was untrue, the lie. And worshipped and served the creature, including themselves, incidentally, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Okay, it's a direct affront. There are certain things that you can do sexually that are a direct affront to the creator. That doesn't sound good, whatever that is. I don't know. What do you think? Sounds like that could be, I don't want to, you know, we in Pittsburgh, there's a Penn Avenue, you'll sometimes see a boulevard. If you come to Pittsburgh, you'll see a, a bulletin board. Say, not bold, what am I looking for? What do they put those things on the highway? Billboard, pardon me, thank you. A billboard on the highway says, don't make me come down there, God. Okay? Because you don't want a piece of God. Uh, God says to you, you want a piece of me, you want to say no to that question. Because God will take you out in an instant, right? You got to be wary of it. Remember what it says in uh, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, right, about Aslan? He's what? He's good. But he's not, not tame. You haven't tamed him. 
Because of this, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. There's again that expression of dishonor. For even their females, okay, we understand males are you know, sexually immoral generally, but even their females exchange the natural use. Here in the context, it means the natural use of the male. We see the, we see the antithetical parallelism in the next verse with regard to men and the natural use of women. And he means as regards sexual intercourse. The term here, use, crescens, is often used in this sense of sexual intercourse. That is that men and women were designed in such a way that if they are going to have sex, they have it with their sexual complement or counterpart, not with a person of the same sex. When they have it with the same sex, they're operating against divine design, which becomes an affront to the creator. So... Even their females exchange the natural use for that form of use which is contrary to nature, implying with members of the same sex. And likewise also, to indicate the parallelism here, the males, having left behind the natural use of the female, that is, as regards sexual intercourse, were inflamed in their yearning for one another. There's a reciprocity here. There's a mutuality here in the relationship. It isn't just having something done to you. Their desire was for one another, males with males, committing indecency. This term can be rendered in various ways. Indecency, committing shameful acts, uh, shamelessness, and in return receiving in themselves the payback necessitated by their straying. In the context here, it is their straying from God. It's not that you have to worship statues and the image of false gods in order to engage in same-sex intercourse, it's rather that in any capacity, when we turn away from the true God, we turn to forms of behavior which forget the way in which we have been made by that creator God. More likely to do so. Okay, so three main arguments are used for discounting Paul's witness about homosexual practice here. Number one, the exploitation argument. Number two, the orientation argument. Number three, the misogyny argument. The exploitation argument that the only kinds of homosexual practice Paul was considering, allegedly, are sex with an adolescent, with a call boy, or with a slave. So it's only exploitative behavior, exploiting other people rather than engaging in a loving relationship. The other argument, the orientation argument, that Paul had no concept of any innate influences on homosexual development. And had he had such a concept, he might have had a different view. So the argument goes. And finally, misogyny argument. Misogyny meaning women-hating. From miseo meaning to hate, gune from woman. Women-hating. Uh, this is the main argument that's used by scholars who know about the issue of homosexual practice in the ancient world and in the New Testament and biblical text generally. Uh, it's not an argument I agree with, but it's the dominant argument among scholars. It's the least influential argument in the church. So we have more stuff to be filtered down at later days. Uh, so I, this is the preemptive strike. Uh, namely, that Paul feared homosexual practice because it would upset the hierarchical difference between male and female. Because if you have two women having sex, who's on top? Who's in control? You have two men having sex, who's on bottom? Who's submitted? Okay? And the argument is that's why they find homosexual problematic, because it obscures that hierarchical relationship between men and women, which these writers see as exploitative. Okay, uh, here's going to give you five quick arguments as to why Paul's indictment here is absolute. It takes in all forms 
of homosexual practice. Number one, there's a clear echo to Genesis 1 here. Okay? Now, how do we know that? First of all, we're told to be thinking about these Genesis texts right away because Paul mentions the creation in 120 and the creator in 125. So that's to get your mind orbiting around the texts in Scripture that have to do with creation. Then in 123, Romans 123 says that humans exchange the glory of the imperishable God for the likeness of the image of a perishable human and of birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. What does Genesis 1.26 say? Let us make a human according to our image, uh, and, according, and likewise let them rule over the birds, the cattle, and the reptiles. Okay? Now there's a lot of points of correspondence between those two sets of texts. Look at Romans 1.26 to 127. Why is Paul only referencing male and female? Why doesn't he, for example, use the nomenclature man and woman? Because very simply, the very next text of Genesis, Genesis 1.27, says male and female, he made them. If we look at this in chart form, we see a tripartite structure here, where in both sets of texts, we have the reference to God's likeness and image in humans, followed by the dominion over humans over the animal kingdom, birds, cattle, and reptiles, followed by male-female differentiation. This pattern is not accidental. This is a deliberate reference back and echoing back to the Genesis creation text in Genesis 1.26 to 1.27. When you have eight points of correspondence and similar tripartite structure, that's your clue this is an echo back. This is what scholars call intertextuality. That is, it's a way of saying that New Testament writers often don't need to cite a, an Old Testament text verbatim. They can just echo it through a series of allusions. Another classic example would be Jesus' words over the cup in the Last Supper. It, that text in that short little compass about this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out or shed for you, that little selection of texts echoes about six or seven key texts in the Old Testament, from the Sinai text into the prophetic corpus, all in that little short compass, no text being cited verbatim but allusions are being made all along the way for the reader to pick up. And when you have something like that happening, when you give these little bit elusive allusions, if you will, taking place in the text, rather than just hitting us over the head and saying, hey, look, dum-dum, this is the text I'm quoting, it means a little bit more. Okay? That's my own little paraphrase there, by the way. It, it, it's a, you got that straight from Scripture, but I'll give you the text later. It's actually an echo. But anyway, it's an illusion. It, you're, in eluding the text, it forces you, it stimulates your mind to do a little work, right? It's like a parable. Jesus not in a parable isn't giving you the straightforward answer, right? You got to think about his parables a little bit. Unfortunately, the problem today in interpretation of parables is we know them all too well. And they're all too familiar to us, and they don't strike us as it would have struck Jesus' own hearers as bizarre. A use of a bizarre use of imagery is that how is God like a thief in the night? Right? How is God like a sower who loses 70% of the seed? Okay, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem like God. That doesn't seem to be worth those images are discordant and force a person to rethink their way of viewing God. And it has a greater meaning as a result when you arrive at the proper interpretation. Same thing here with intertextuality. That's only one argument. There's also an argument from nature for persons who don't have access to Scripture in front of them. 
and nature arguments are not given to distinctions between exploitation and non-exploitation. These are broad categories that take in basic differences between male and female. And the nature argument is already being picked up in 119 to 20. The knowable aspect of God, Paul says, is visible or apparent or transparent to them because God has made it visible or apparent or transparent to them. This is an expression that refers both to things that are visible and things that are obvious to people with minds or intellect, hopefully us. For ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities are clearly seen. They're being mentally apprehended by means of the things that God made. That's a nature argument. It's not enough to be saved, but it's enough to know that you did wrong. Okay? Likewise, now this is not accidental then, because Romans 1.18 to, uh, to 132 is an extended vice list or offender list, where Paul says the following groups of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? They're all over Paul's letters. The only difference with this one is he spends a lot more time on the first two. Paul always starts with idolatry and sexual immorality in either order. Either sexual immorality is first, followed by idolatry, or more frequently, idolatry is first, followed by sexual immorality. And he spends more time on each of those first two points in the offender list. And when he pinpoints a particular element of sexual immorality, he focuses on same-sex intercourse. Why? Because that's the clearest example that human beings have to deliberately suppress the truth about the way God made them in order to engage in the behavior. Because it is intended as so obvious that a compliment to a man, sexually speaking, is a woman, and for a woman, a man, anatomically, physiologically, psychologically, that you have to have a tremendous amount of education to not know that. I mean, you really have to rethink everything that's so obvious and make the obvious not obvious, which is some, sadly a lot of what some education is about, and ignore what God is saying to you, hey, look, anyone can know this. Even my girls when they were young, and I, by the way, I, I know you might think I'm always talking to them about sexuality, but I don't. I try to keep them pure from that discussion as long as I can to keep them innocent. But they will comment, even though they go to a Christian school, uh, or my youngest still does, my oldest is now into a secular high school, but uh, in elementary went to a Christian school. Even there, they hear about things like gay marriage. And they come back home, and I can remember Eliana, my youngest, when she was five years old, coming to me and saying, Imagine five years old, she even hears it in the context of going to a Christian school. That's how much it's saturating the culture. She says to me, Daddy, how can a man marry a man? That's not possible. Look at a man and a woman. That's not possible. I'm saying, okay, well, I didn't think I should have that discussion with you, but uh, you're basically right, honey. But we'll talk about that further in about 10 years. Get back to me about it later. So likewise, the truth about God's will is visible in our gendered bodies when it comes to sex. It's meant to be obvious. It's not meant to be, if I could be anachronistic, rocket science or brain surgery. Pagans who don't have Genesis Leviticus in front of them know enough to be held accountable for that information. Now, you might say nature might also include whatever orientation you have, whatever innate urges or desire you have. That's also an argument that's being used. But Paul would say that doesn't work because I can think of a half dozen desires off the top of my head 
that are innate desires that I experience but aren't natural in the sense that we're using the term here. They're not natural in the sense that they accord with God's well-working purposes and creation, right? They're part of the infiltration of sin into the world, which does not reflect God's will, right? The fact that we experience envy, jealousy, greed, pride, these are not things that honor God. Anyone knows that. Even people who don't subscribe to the scriptures recognize these are not great impulses, but nobody has to experience those impulses. They simply do. So innate desires are highly unreliable guides as to what the will of God is. The way in which we are structured in our embodied existence is less likely to be impacted by sin's entrance into the world. And finally, there are Greek and Roman moralists who condemn all forms of homosexual practice on the grounds of a nature argument. Uh, the first few centuries A.D., here's a person by name of Thomas K. Hubbard. He's a classicist at the University of Texas, Austin. He did a 500-page source book of texts from Greece and Rome related to homosexuality with great little introductions for each period of time in history. He divvies it up into about six different periods of time. And, uh, and he's somewhat of an expert in this subject, and he says, look, the first few centuries, quote, bear witness to an increasing polarization of attitudes toward homosexual activity, ranging from frank acknowledgement and public display to severe moral condemnation of all homosexual acts. Basic to the heterosexual position is the characteristic Stoic appeal, that is in Greek and Roman moral discourse, to the providence of nature which has matched and fitted the sexes to each other. In other words, even to the Greeks and the Romans, there's some basic awareness, even in a larger culture where there's some approval of homosexual practice, there's an awareness that this doesn't quite fit. There's something about this that doesn't correspond to the way in which men and women are made, that it's obvious that there's a compatibility to male-female sexuality that there isn't for a same-sex union. Mention of lesbianism in Romans 1.26. Likewise also, uh, uh, some people argue that Romans 1.26 doesn't refer to lesbianism because it doesn't actually say that they exchange the natural use, women exchange the natural use of the male. It leaves off of the male. So some people say this isn't really about lesbianism at all. Now they need to say that because lesbianism in the ancient world isn't typically exploitative. That is, it's not conducted with an adolescent, with a slave, or a call girl. So when Paul's indicting lesbianism, he's indicting everything. Well, Suffice it to say that every argument we can put forward from the ancient world indicates he's talking about lesbianism. Lesbian, inter uh, lesbian intercourse is that form of female sexuality that's most commonly called contrary to nature in Greek and Romans texts. Lesbian intercourse is that form of female sexuality most consistently paired when you have a discussion of male homosexuality. So it's exactly what we would expect here. There's also in the ancient world, even by proponents of male homosexuality, and almost universal opposition to lesbianism. The likelihood that Paul could have been improving of lesbianism is basically slim and none. Lesbianism is the dominant interpretation of the church fathers about Romans 1.26. Lesbianism is sometimes used as a clinching argument. There are debates between proponents of man-male love and male-female love in the ancient world. And proponents of male-female love is superior to man-male love say, look, if you're going to support male homosexuality to be consistent, 
you'd have to support female homosexuality, and we know you don't want to do that. So the importance of this is that Paul is indicting everything in homosexual practice, both committed unions and non-committed unions. Mutual gratification confirmed by the men, males being inflamed with desire for one another, so we're not talking about issues of um, exploitation involved here. I'm not going to really talk about 1 Corinthians 6, 9, so memorize those slides. Uh, we just don't have the time. Suffice it to say that when Paul is talking about men who lie with a male, arsenal koitai in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it's drawn from terms in the Levitical prohibition of man-male intercourse. Males, arson, coite, lying, having sexual intercourse with. And it's a way of saying that our view of homosexual practice in Christianity is every bit as inclusive in its prohibition, every bit as absolute as you find in the Levitical indictments in Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013. And in fact, when you look at how Jews looked at the Levitical prohibitions in the ancient world, um, Jews viewed the prohibitions in Leviticus as absolute, including adult males, including consensual activity, every form of hom male homosexual practice um, that is not male-female. In other words, every form of male homosexual practice. Uh, we're going to skip over the first Timothy text. Many texts in the ancient world talk about committed love uh, between consenting adults of the same sex, including from Plato's Symposium. In fact, some of the descriptions that we have here sound very much like the descriptions that we hear given in our own current cultural context. There's a lot of knowledge of caring, committed homosexual relationships in the Greek and Roman world. Uh, we have romances talking about it. We have, we have uh, Roman uh, satirist Marshall, uh, epigrammatist Marshall, and satirist Juvenal talking about semi-official marriages in Rome between men. We have debates, as I noted, in the ancient world be between proponents of male homosexuality and proponents of heterosexuality. And the proponents of homose male homosexuality appeal to committed, lifelong relationships between men as superior to committed relationships between a man and a woman. They're not making appeals to exploitation. Uh, let's see here. And there's evidence for lesbian marriages also in antiquity and commented on by uh, rabbinic authors, by church fathers, as well as by Greek and Roman moralists. And these relationships are clearly not exploitative. So if you hear the argument that somebody says, well, they didn't know anything about committed homosexual relationships in the ancient world, you just met somebody who doesn't know the ancient evidence because that, those facts are out there. And the top scholars in the world to work on this issue, even who support homosexual relationships, even scholars that identify as lesbian or gay acknowledge this to be the case. The only people who don't acknowledge the case is the people who don't know the ancient evidence. My point in mentioning those things is to say that this is not radically new knowledge unavailable to people in the ancient world. And therefore, it cannot be made as a basis for ignoring what Paul has to say in Romans 1. The other new knowledge that people appeal to is they didn't know anything about sexual orientation in antiquity. That turns out also to be false. First of all, there's nothing in the language of Romans 1 that says that people who woke up one day heterosexual woke up the next day to say, I think I'll be homosexual. That is not what Paul is arguing in Romans 1. Paul is arguing that people ignored 
despite whatever pre-existing urges they had, ignored the obvious evidence about the way God made man and woman in creation and had gratified those innate desires to have sex with members of the same sex in spite of the evidence of their own bodies. That's, what's, that's what they're ignoring according to Romans 1. It's not saying they're making up sexual orientation or creating it for themselves. Romans 1 is not about the origination of sin. The origination of sin is discussed in the Adam-Christ parallel in Romans 5. Romans 1 is about how sin takes over society because human beings prefer to act out of their innate desires rather than the obvious evidence in the material structures of creation accessible to people with minds. That's the exchange that takes place according to Romans 1. And in fact, there's a whole series of theories in the ancient world positing some degree of congenital influence on homosexual attraction. This is not radically new knowledge in our own day. By the way, I'm not saying that we're born that way either. Not a, again, it's not a deterministic model. It isn't a fate accompli that's given to us from the moment of birth. But there may be predisposing biological factors, at least indirect, that make it a greater risk factor for homosexual development as a person develops within the family group and within among peers and in, within the larger society as a whole. So we have various things, including a particular mix of male and female sperm elements at creation, an inherited disease analogous to a mutated gene, a chronic disease of the mind or soul influenced indirectly by biology, but made hard to resist by socializing factors. All across the board, there are various theories. They all unite in this one perspective. There's a lot of homosexual attraction that doesn't have to do anything with choice, but has to do with innate urges that people experience in life. What that means, and that's perfectly, by the way, compatible with Paul's view of sin, because Paul understands sin as an innate impulse passed on by an ancestor running through the members of the human body and never entirely within human control. So if you said to Paul that a person might have an innate desire for same-sex attraction, he would say, well, that fits perfectly my understanding about what sin is. Sin, a sinful impulse. Anyone here pray for a sinful impulse to get that? Did you get that? Did you have to even pray for that? I suppose you even wanted to pray for that in a perverse sort of way. You wouldn't have to pray for it, would you? Because you were born with it. You were born with an array of desires to do what God doesn't want you to do. That doesn't make it natural in the sense of operating with God's intentional designs and creation. It's rather us conforming to sinful desires that have impacted negatively God's creation and which one day God will root out completely and fully. We can either get with the program now or we can wait before, like in Philippians 2, before we fall on our faces, get on our knees, and have to acknowledge to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is Lord. We can do it. I'd rather do it now. I don't know about you. I'd rather do it now before I am forced to do it at the end. Because you remember Jesus' repeated description of what life will then be like after every knee bows, after every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does Jesus say? There will be weeping and grinding of teeth by those who are thrust into outer darkness. That's Jesus. Now, Jesus is a loving fellow, right? Who's going to accuse Jesus of hate? 
what is the image here? The image here is because Jesus is constantly referencing the Messianic banquet, okay, which already is talked about in texts in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah 24 to 27. This great time of celebration, an eternal celebration of the accomplishment of God's purposes in the universe, with at the head of the table the one who actually offered himself up as the meal. Jesus himself giving his body and blood on our behalf. He is both the host, he is the meal. That's why we celebrate the Eucharist. That's an anticipation of the Messianic banquet. And the Messianic banquet here in Jesus' image is being presented as a brightly lit banquet hall. But then there are others who are outside that brightly lit banquet hall who grind their teeth and weep because they wish that they were there. And Jesus himself says, they will not be. Now, you can call that hate, but again, since it's Jesus, you're going to have a hard case in arguing that Jesus is a hateful guy. Instead, you're going to have to say that he's speaking the truth in love. And the purpose of warning people ahead of time is to make sure that they don't go there. But they are with him in the brightly lit banquet hall. But if people are waiting for some additional piece of information that they need to have in order to make the commitment to Jesus, that is a big mistake. Because once the Son of God, once the light enters into the world, there is no radically new piece of information that can be given. This is it. I mean, this is the, this is the problematic and, and glorious dimension of the light coming into the world because it now makes possible acceptance of the light, where previous, previously that acceptance was not possible. But by the same token, it makes possible the rejection of the light, which in effect seals one's fate. And that's why we as believers have to speak the truth in love. We have so many excuses. I'll close with this and then we'll open up to some questions. We have so many excuses for not speaking the truth in love. But they really, we talked about this last night for those at the student center, what it really boils down to is this. We just simply want to be liked and we don't want to be hated and we want the approval of the world. It's got nothing to do with loving others when we do not disclose the truth in love to them because everything is at stake for them. If when my daughters were young, I as a parent, if they were going to move towards touching a hot stove, and I said, I'm a pluralistic, tolerant, diverse guy, why don't you go touch the hot stove and experiment? Do you know that state social services in the United States, I don't know how it works in Canada, but in the United States, they do not regard that as love. They regard that as parental abuse, and they will take your children out of your home. What we're talking about here is not touching a hot stove, from which you'll recover readily enough. We're talking about an eternal destiny for people here. What possible argument based on love could be given for not disclosing to them the truth in love, which will impact their entire eternal destiny? I can't think of a good argument. And quite frankly, I don't want to be in a position when I appear before God in the day of judgment, as Paul, even Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, before the Bema, the place in which the judgment is pronounced in the town marketplace, which is a raised platform like this one here, 
where God pronounces, Christ pronounces judgment. I do not want to be able to try to give an excuse for why it is that I did not share the truth and love to persons who needed it. Because none of the excuses are going to hold water with God. Jesus died for telling the truth in love. They didn't crucify him because he withheld the truth. They crucified him because he spoke the truth. And of course, by definition as Jesus, he always spoke it in love. Because he spoke it in love, he had a complete guarantee that he would never be harmed or hated, right? That's why he was crucified, right? Nobody harmed him, nobody hated him. Okay, well, guess what? There's the perfect example of love, perfect example of speaking the truth in love, but it didn't exempt him from people's hatred. So much hatred, they killed him. So don't think that you have some way to share the truth in love that is going to make people never hate you. That is not going to happen because it's too much sin is too much of a part of the self-identity of the world. And when you hold the light up to that, darkness doesn't like it. So I'm not encouraging you to add any offense to that with your own personality, being nasty or in any other sort of way that might serve as an obstacle to receiving the gospel. I'm certainly not encouraging that. But what I'm saying is you, you are not going to find a way to share the truth and love that is going to protect you from people not liking you. So just give up that dream right now. Can we all agree to give up that dream? There are going to be people in the world. Can you believe it? There are actually people in the world that don't like me. Go figure. How did that happen? I can't see what's not, if you ask my mother, she'll say, he's a good boy. Who could not like him, right? I'm thankful for my mother, but I've discovered most people are not my mother, and they have a varied perspective on who I am. Okay, if I've done something wrong to contribute to that, then I apologize. But a lot of it simply comes from sharing the truth of God in love. So let's open any questions or observations you have at the present time. And we'll have the mic going around here. So Kaya has a question over there. Hi. Um, so my question ha kind of has to do with uh, addressing people um, who are struggling with this issue on like in, in, or in a one-on-one -on -one relationship kind of, kind of way. Um, in my personal experience, a, a question that's that's come up kind of readily to me, um, even from people seeking freedom from, like homosexual urges or or what have you, um, I, I was I was given this question by someone sincerely looking for escape. She said, "Is God, does God not want me to have someone? Like, am I am I supposed to live a life alone? At, like, do like do I not get love?" because I don't feel attraction to a man. Um, and I think that's a question that a lot of people struggling with this issue are having is if I'm having these issues and I can't get past, like, like it's, it's not, they understand that their urges towards someone of the same sex are bad, but they're in this place where they can't, they're, they're in a way turned off by the other sex and they can't wrap their head around ever being attracted to them. So they're in this place of, well, am I being called to singlehood? And I understand that God calls people to singlehood sometimes and that's a hard thing for people to swallow. But how do you, 
address that with people of like I I don't know if God's calling you to that but he may be cuz that's that's going to be hard for some people to hear. So how do you address with people the idea that God can release you from that and it may be in your future but at the same time yes God could be calling you to a life of singlehood. Mm-hmm. And how do you how do you how do you get them to understand that God isn't bad for doing that? Yeah, there's so many ways to that one could look at that particular question. It's an important question. Um, the, the basic premise when we think that, and by the way, we all think like that. It may not be about the specific issue about finding a partner for life to marry, but there is one, there are dozens of other issues that are possible here where we think if God is to be a good God, he must do X for us, whatever X is, okay? So in the case of this example that Kaya provided, it's the example of someone who is same-sex attraction, doesn't feel any opposite-sex attraction. How could God put me in this situation where I'm not going to be able to have an intimate partner for life? Okay? That's just one of many possibilities which people feel some degree of deprivation or difficulty in life. God, God has not given them their deepest desires, whatever it might be. For other people, it might be, unless I have this career, or unless I make this amount of money, or unless these people like me, whatever it is, whatever it is, we think we need to have a meaningful and satisfying life, that is an idol. It's an idol that we construct, that we want to serve, and we expect to get certain benefits from doing so. But unfortunately, that, or fortunately, that is not God. The way that God operates is never to give anybody a guarantee to get exactly what they want, when they want it, with whom they want it with. That is not the way that God operates. God ultimately operates to say, what you really need is one thing. And it's obscured by your own ideology, your own desires. That one thing you need is my son. That's the one absolutely essential thing you must have, and I provided it for you. Everything else is a potential idol. Because everything else could be something that you're going to put alongside of the need for Jesus to say this is at least equally, if not more important. And if there's a conflict between the two, I'm going to go with the desire. Or I'm going to go with the ideology rather than go with Jesus. That's exactly where we cannot go. Now, Paul did not, so far as we know, Paul did not have the issue of same-sex attractions. But we do know this is the kind of average life that Paul had getting up in the morning. Think about this. Paul would get up in the morning and have to say to himself, okay, I'm going to be, again, poorly sheltered, poorly clothed, poorly fed. I'm probably going to be whipped in the synagogues 40 lashes minus one, because the law only entitles 40 lashes, and you don't want to make sure you go over the law, so we'll give them 39 just to cover it. Uh, Well, thank you very much for that one less lash. Or I could be beaten by rods by secular authorities. I'm in constant anxiety for the spiritual health of all my churches, and I don't have internet, by the way. I don't have a cell phone. I don't have any immediate access to finding out what is actually going on in their life. I might be stoned, and I'm not talking about drugs here. 
There are instances where I'm just going from place to place and I'm not even sharing the gospel and I might be shipwrecked or beaten by robbers. Thank you very much for that, God. What was the purpose of that? I didn't even get to share the gospel before I got beaten up by the robbers. What, what was that all, that all about, right? This is Paul's daily life, okay? Which one of us has a life more difficult than that on a daily basis? I would dare say my entire life probably doesn't come up to a single day that he had to experience, okay? If there should have been anybody in the known universe complaining about his lot in life, that would be Paul. And yet, instead, we find this joy, even when he's in prison, right? The happiest letter of all, all of Paul's letters is Philippians when he's writing from prison. Okay, go figure. I mean, what, what is the guy a masochist? What's going on here? It's because he knows that even the difficulties in life serve a divine purpose. That's the key thing that all of us have to take with us in every aspect of our life and not charge God with in any way being unjust. That is not a good look, men and women, to go before God of the bar of judgment and say, God, you did not act fairly. You lied to me. You told me you would give me X or Y and I didn't get it. That is not a good look. At that point, you would want to get on your face just as fast as you could possibly get there and say, I don't know what I'm talking about. Because God, by definition, is never unjust. God is always in the right. And here's the central paradigm. What is the central image of the Christian faith? The central image, number one, numero uno, what's the central image of the Christian faith? The cross. How about that? The supreme moment of pain, suffering, shame inflicted on the Messiah, on the Son of God, that's the greatest moment in human history. That's the God we serve. God can take the most difficult circumstance in life and can turn it around to the great moment in life. Because all of it serves one purpose, knowing him. And when Jesus died on the cross, that was not a defeat. That was a performance of the will of God, despite whatever pain or agony or suffering he would have to go through, which would ultimately lead to making amends for the sins of the whole world, the whole universe, in that one act. Because only one person's life could outweigh all the rest of humanity's sins. And that could only come from the Son of God, come down from heaven, leading a sinless life, and laying it down for all the rest of us. That is the definitive moment of God's love for all the world to see. So what are we going to say? This X area of my life that I have to have a meaningful life, God is not God unless he gives me that. I know he can take the cross and make it the greatest event in human history. But he can't take this difficulty in my life and make it a great event. You have no right to play God and to circumvent the work of God in somebody else's life to short-circuit it by saying, you can forget God's commands and go ahead and sin because it is too hard for you to do otherwise. Because what God is saying is, I am working in that person, in that difficulty, to show them that my grace is enough. 
that my power will be brought to completion in the midst of your weakness, not by taking you out of your weakness, but right in the midst of it, you will see that I am more than enough, that knowing me is greater, so that whatever you experience, just simply knowing me will mean you have a meaningful, satisfying, full life, irrespective of what the world does to you. And I think that's ultimately the message we have to say, not only to the person who's same-sex attracted, but to all Christians who hold up whatever idol there is that they must have in, to have in, in order, allegedly, to have a meaningful life. There are other things we could say, but that probably more or less does it.